Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every week we discuss a classic work of New Testament scholarship. This week we're discussing Wayne Meek's The First Urban Christians, The Social World of the Apostle Paul, published in 1983. Today I'm joined by Ben Shepard. Ben, who are you? I am a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill uh, in the Ancient Mediterranean Religions program, focusing on early Christianity. Back when we were in coursework, Ben and I took a number of classes together. So this is a nice overlap between things Ben is interested in and things I'm interested in. Meeks is a classic study for introducing social history into the world of New Testament scholarship and early Christianity. So on that topic, Ben, what is social history? Social history is a way of exploring social relationships in a particular historical period. The important thing to remember about social history is that fundamentally it's a discipline of history. And so it is, it's history before sociology. And so we're, we're looking at the past and we're trying to explore the past, but we're using sociological models or sociological questions or sociological tools to look at the past. We're asking of past societies the same kind of questions that modern sociology asks of the present uh, in terms of kinds of categories that we use to discuss society, whether that is class, race, sex and gender, age, disability, all these kind of questions, uh, but put to the ancient world to the best that we can tell through the sources that we have. So one of the questions social history seeks to answer is, what is it like to be an early Christian? Or what would a day in the life of an early Christian look like? It can do more than that, but that's the sort of question social history works on, uh, and the sort of questions Meek is going to address. That's the way you sell it to undergrads. Is this <laughs> is how you, this is what it's like to be an early Christian. I mean, which is also very interesting. Yeah, it's the, the elevator pitch. Right. This, Meeks points out, has been criticized as assuming regularities in the human experience. Uh, it's criticized for being anachronistic. You are trying to import yourself into someone whose world was alien from our own. And while we don't want to deny that this world is different from ours, is other from ours, th the idea that to assume regularities is problematically anachronistic is no less true of social history than it is of all translation. Translation no less than social history presumes shared regularities in human experiences and is anachronistic. The decision to use an English term to represent a word in ancient Greek is not only a sort of self-conscious anachronism, but it is built upon countless assumptions of historical regularity. In fact, we are able to identify where the semantic ranges of our vocabularies differ only by assuming a host of other regularities. Take Homer's, quote, wine-dark sea. We discover the purported absence of a category for blue in ancient Greek, only by accepting a certain regularity in human perception, and the descriptive value of both wine and sea for rendering oinos and talasa respectively. So, it's not that social history isn't anachronistic, it's that all of history, including philology, is, in a pretty trivial sense admittedly, a form of anachronism. Now, that isn't, of course, to say that there's no difference between good and bad history or any such thing as vicious anachronism. Vicious anachronism is when, by applying a modern category to another period, presumably because it has some descriptive value, you import certain assumptions or claims that inaccurately characterize your subject. 
To claim that the Gospel of Mark circulated widely and quickly following its publication is probably a true claim that depends on a number of valuable anachronisms in the trivial sense. But to conclude from this that the author likely reaped a great financial profit is viciously anachronistic. Why? Because although circulation and publishing do characterize certain phenomena in the ancient world, unlike today, ancient authors didn't make money in proportion to the breadth of the circulation of their works. It's importing an inaccurate description by way of an anachronistic grouping of categories. I'm not, neither of us are interested in perpetuating any kind of methodological turf war here between the philologists and uh, people who apply uh, social theory to uh, our texts. I mean... Oh, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. When we're talking about social theory, uh, we're talking about a wide variety of approaches, theories, and methodologies uh, that you can choose from. And so any kind of work that goes on from this perspective is going to have to take a position Um, You're going to have to kind of justify which position you're taking. Meeks doesn't want to commit himself to a single theory of religion or theory of society. He wants to sort of pick different parts of different theories and use them as applicable. He doesn't think you can do retrodiction. You can use a theory and use that to infer unexamined parts of the past. Right. Um, So he's going to adopt different pieces of other people's theories and then go from there into... The specter of Marxism. (laughs) Meeks takes kind of what he himself describes as a piecemeal or eclectic approach, and he focuses mostly on uh, Clifford Geertz and Victor Turner, who are uh, anthropologists, but they fall under this uh, kind of umbrella of social theory. And for Geertz and Turner as anthropologists, they're looking to describe the social world that they find themselves in. And so they're really talking about a kind of a system of symbols that gives meaning to daily relations and regular everyday life between people. He'll call it uh, a moderate functionalism, and functionalism being a term for looking at the social world in such a way that you're trying to see how the different pieces fit together and how to describe how things work, rather than trying to make any kind of critique. So there are six chapters in this book, and we're not going to be able to go through all of them. Uh, I think the most influential part of his monograph is chapter two, where he surveys the social status of Christians as reflected in Paul's letters. And I think the fact that this is the most important part of his book is actually indicated in his conclusion, where nearly all of the conclusions he reaches and, like, research he projects is basically drawn out of his second chapter. So we're going to focus on that. As a descriptive work, there's and as, as a work of social history, there's a lot of data in here, and he does a fantastic job of mining mm-hmm. just an incredible amount of information about uh, the Pauline communities in, in the book as a whole. Rather than just collecting information in terms of his presenting a, a strong argument, chapter two is really where it's at. Right. Chapter two is called The Social Level of Pauline Christianity. And he introduces this by talking about Celsus and the romanticization of Christian poverty. Um, So there is this notion that Christianity was a movement of the poor. And it has to be said for this movement that it's it's rooted in some ancient testimonia. So Celsus, a second century critic of Christianity, says that Christians... Christians seek their converts among the lowest dregs of society from his perspective. 
Um, they go out and try to sway the uneducated and illiterate. Yeah, and there was some early 20th century work that seemed to corroborate this. Deisman has a famous study of the documentary papyri where he shows that the language of the New Testament has more in common with the everyday letters people were sending back and forth than it has to do with the high literary works of the ancient literary elite. The classical canon. And Meek's whole study is going to be pushing back against this, but he's certainly not the first person to do this nor the last. More recent work on the language, so um, Meek cites the work of Mallerby, but we might cite the work of Loveday Alexander, has shown that actually the New Testament sort of falls into a middling position on the spectrum of ling- linguistic sophistication. In both form and in idiom, it has a lot to do with the technical treatises of antiquity. So Loveday Alexander has shown that it has a lot to do with things like scientific or medical treatises. Uh, it's really it's similar to other forms of Greco-Roman historiography or other purposefully circular epistolography. Right. So this is all more or less background for his study. And he's going to start off by problematizing the entire idea that there is one continuum on which we can rank the social level, and that's intentionally ambiguous language, um, the social level of Christians. So let's look at that. How do we measure social stratification? It's important to remember that Meeks is limiting his data to the Pauline corpus. So he's looking at Pauline Christianity. I, I think there have been more recent critiques that have gone back to uh, this kind of model of the early church being overwhelmingly poor, um, that have made good critiques of Meeks and others, but they are trying to talk about Christianity as a whole, or they're talking about other populations of Christianity, whereas Meeks is focusing on the Pauline letters, and the Pauline letters do in fact give off a very specific indication of their social situation. As we'll discuss in a second, there may be reasons to think that Pauline Christianity or the people who are reflected in the Pauline letters are not representative of what you might find in Palestinian Christianity right. or what you might find in uh, in the North community. North African Christianity, Roman right. Christianity. I mean, this is, this is a very specific network that we're talking about here. Yep. So there are a few different ways you can measure social and economic stratification. And Meeks gives three. Uh, and rejects two, which is, you know, the, the way that you, you present things uh, as an academic. The first thing he does is class. He doesn't think class is helpful for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think he, he's mostly on point here that we don't want to confuse our kind of modern and fairly recent demarcation of upper, middle, and lower class. Uh, we don't want to over the, overlay that onto the ancient world where it didn't really hold and again, you know, class has been taken up in Marxist discourse to mean very specific things uh, that also may not hold for right. the ancient world. Meeks just finds class in general as not a great way of talking about uh, socioeconomic status. Class is the sort of anachronism that isn't helpful, where right. in American society, having a bunch of money usually raises you on all aspects of your social status. And he's wanting to point out that this isn't the case in the ancient world and sort of importing our notions that having one thing means another thing would be an inaccurate way of describing the ancient world. Now, on the other hand, you can take actual ways of ordering society from the ancient world that might that are actually from the ancient world, but then they might not work so well for the communities we're describing. Could you... Right, absolutely. So an example of this would be order. And the Roman caste system actually maps really, really well onto this notion of order. There are a series of distinct 
castes that people in antiquity described themselves as belonging to. The senatorial class, the equestrians. The problem with using this to talk about early Christianity is every early Christian we know about would belong to the same order, would belong to the same caste. All the distinctions within the entire Roman caste system only apply to the top 1% of society. And as far as we know, no early Christian is even on this radar of the caste system. We don't know of any Christian senators or equestrians. It seems that everyone we're talking about, everyone we're concerned with, would belong to one order. So despite the fact that this isn't a bad anachronism, it's not particularly helpful for talking about Christians. Right. The compromise here that Meeks tries to strike is to talk about status, um, which is a bit more flexible of a word, but it's really something that's necessary in this case because we're talking about a very different situation. Status can be multidimensional, right? And so status can be accrued through wealth. It can be accrued through the amount of money that you have, but it can also come from occupational prestige. It can come from your family. It can come from your education. It can come from where you're from, your origins. It can come from certain types of religious and ritual power. So status has all kinds of different dimensions to it that you can talk about. Yeah, and he wants to use status because the one and the same person can have very different status in different categories. There are multiple axes on which this works. So you can be wealthy, but have very low occupational prestige. You could be ritually powerful, but be from, be, but be uneducated or not have any money. So a couple examples of this might be a, a priestess. So a woman in the ancient world, would her gender would consign her to a lower status. Uh, but having religious power would be a source of high status. Or a rich freed slave. You know, freedmen could go on to accrue great wealth, and from their wealth they would gain some status, but the fact that they were a freedman would forever consign them to low status in other regards. So when we talk about status and consistency, we've established that it's fairly normal in the ancient world versus, at least in comparison to our world for people to have multiple statuses uh, on different axes that are high and low that don't match up. Uh, what Meeks wants to say is that certain people are going to experience this and then experience some kind of internal anguish or stress about their mixed statuses and then are going to want to do something about it mm-hmm. to try to ameliorate this kind of internal condition. And so Meeks' suggestion is that Pauline Christianity especially attracted these types of people who were experiencing some kind of internal conflict in regard to their status and consistency. So Meeks is going to look at the Pauline letters, and particularly he's going to focus on the names, what's called prosopography, that is a study of names, and look for the evidence that the Pauline letters give us about the social statuses that early Christians had. So this is why the Pauline letters are so great. Prosopography is one of ways that you can look at these texts, but the Pauline letters, because of their occasional nature, they really convey to us now a lot of information that Paul probably didn't necessarily intend to convey, but just by addressing his social world, he brought things out, right? So prosopography is a study of names. And so by simply naming the people in his churches and telling us, you know, sometimes just a little bit about those people, it actually gives us information about his social world that he he didn't necessarily, you know, intend to save for posterity. But looking back, we can find this information embedded in his letters. Right. So he goes over 65 names in the 
authentic Pauline letters, as well as the Deuteropauline letters, and 13 additional names in Acts. And we're not going to have time to go over all of these, but we want to look at a few of the names that really bring out his method, how he's approaching this. And it's remarkable sometimes how much you can get from almost no information that Paul gives us. Right. So he's excluding from this account the pastoral epistles, just like he's excluding the epistle of the Laodiceans and the epistle of Seneca. The first figure I want to talk about is my dad's favorite character in the New Testament. That is Erastus in Romans 16. My dad is a city manager, and Erastus is called the oikumenos, or the city manager of Corinth. This by itself would be interesting, because we learn something about his occupational prestige. He has an important office within the city. It's a little bit hard to figure out what that office is. Oikomenos could refer to a few different things. But we have an additional piece of evidence that makes Erastus especially interesting. You see, we discovered an inscription near the theater in Corinth that reads, Erastus, in return for his aedileship, paved it as his own expense. So it commemorates Erastus donating a pavement or a patio of some sort to the city as thanks for, for being given an aedileship, which is another probably higher rank on, the, on the, what's called the cursus honorum, or the civic roles to which you can reach. Um, so it appears that at some point Erastus earned an even more elevated social status. Um, so from this, we're learning a few things. We're learning that Erastus is wealthy enough to donate a pavement, has social prestige, but, and this is the interesting thing for status and consistency, there is no pronomen on the inscription. So that probably indicates that Erastus was a freedman. He is an ex-slave. So despite having a high office in the city and wealth, he probably had low status just from the conditions of his birth or his, you know, personal history. Uh, another great example is the... Uh early Christian power couple, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who show up both in Paul's letters and then also, uh, again, in Acts. Priscilla and Aquila seem to be, like Paul, uh, some kind of uh, leatherworking or tent-making team. And they're also traveling, too. They're moving around the Mediterranean. They show up uh, in Corinth and in Ephesus. And so uh, they seem to have enough wealth to move themselves around, to sustain themselves, Priscilla is obviously attached to her husband, Aquila, and Priscilla is usually listed first out of the pair, which, again, suggests that she has, at least for Paul, uh, some kind of status above her husband, um, that in this partnership she takes the lead role. So, again, we have this interesting situation where you have people who seem to be wealthy, seem to be mobile, in terms of gender, the, the wife seems to have precedence over the husband in some way, on some level of status, that isn't kind of standard for their society. Returning to Romans 16, there's Phoebe, who we talked about in our uh, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza episode, which you can go back and listen to. It seems Phoebe was the letter carrier for the letter of Romans, and she's characterized as a diakonos, which is a masculine, which is the masculine form of the word, so probably designates some office. If she was just a servant or a, like a, a serving person, we would have expected diakone. So she has this office of diakonos, and in addition, she's called a prostatus for Paul. Now, Justin uses this term to refer to the person who presides over a church meeting, um, and it's possible that's what Phoebe is. 
wherever Paul has been. But the fact that she's called a prostatus for Paul suggests, and Paul is this traveling figure, um, makes this identification of the term a little tricky. We're not so sure what it would mean for this to be his consistent presider over a meeting. So other scholars like Judge have proposed that this may be the language for a patron, the person who sends Paul forth. And so Phoebe may be this person who fiscally or otherwise supports Paul's work. And the fact that she's traveling to Rome with this letter, and you usually send letters with people who are going places for other reasons, may suggest that she's some sort of wealthy or influential business person, or, you know, is going there on some sort of business. So we have a number of features here which seem to suggest that despite the fact that she's a female, and that's in the ancient world, one metric for status that would have put you on the lower end. She has these other things like a church office, which have given her religious power, maybe occupational prestige, we don't know what her work was, and probably economic wealth. Right. Another really interesting, and this is again, this is kind of what Ian mentioned as like what you can pull out of a single name, um, is that when Paul is writing about uh, people in Corinth, he mentions a guy named Achaius. I love this one. Yeah, see, Achaius is is a totally regular name, but the problem is that Achaius is the region of Greece in which Corinth resides. So to have someone named, you know, surnamed Achaius in Corinth would be horribly redundant and not useful at all because everyone there is an Achaian. As as Meeks kind of points out, the the famous painter. El Greco was not referred to as El Greco when he lived in Greece. It wasn't <laughs> until he moved to Spain that he became known as El Greco. So Meek says this highfalutin, sophisticated analogy. Right. Laura, my normal co-host, is from Indiana. And she doesn't get called a Hoosier when she's in Indiana. We call her a Hoosier when she comes to North Carolina. And that's the same thing that's going on here. You get the name Achaius not when you're living in Achaia, but when you're somewhere else. Right. If you if you were in a crowded place in Indiana and said, hey, Hoosier, everyone would turn and look at you. The idea is that somewhere down the line, Achaius's ancestors were from this area and moved to another place, presumably in some kind of position with uh, the Romans, possibly with the military. And so when they went to that other place, they were known as Achaius because they were the Achaians in that other place. And so while they were there, they accrued some other kind of status or level by being associated with the military or some other element of the Roman administration. And now that family has returned to their original homeland, but bearing this new status that they get from their association with the Romans. And so they've retained that kind of name, Achaius, but the reason that it stands out is because it's attached to a family or a person who has this additional level of status through the Romans. And we've learned all this about this figure in Corinth from just his name. So he goes over a bunch of other names that we're not going to have time to cover. Onesimus is a slave. Stephanus seems to have been some elite figure. Let's move on to another class of considerations. That is, the sorts of paranetic or like general moral exhortation that Paul gives to his audience tells us something about their social statuses. You know, for example, uh, in First Thessalonians, there's, uh, you know, this admonition, this paranetic 
uh, admonition that people should work with your hands, which implies potentially a certain level of economic status, at least potentially not day laborers, but maybe people who are artisans and craftsmen uh, like Paul himself. Uh, and in fact, the whole the entire letter of First Thessalonians does suggest that Paul is addressing a group of skilled artisans uh, who have come together as a Christian community. Additionally, uh, and even more suggestive, is this idea in 1 Corinthians of Paul suggesting that the Christians in Corinth put money aside little by little on a week-by-week basis, right? Which implies two diff- different things. It implies, first of all, that they do have a uh, surplus, that they're not simply living on a subsistence level and that, that not all their income is going towards feeding and housing and clothing themselves, but also that they're not so wealthy that they don't have to put aside, you know, a little bit every week, right? So we're talking to people who on an economic level are kind of in a middle position where they do have surplus that they can put aside, but not enough that they can say, I don't know, Ian, throw a bunch of money away on a big banquet. Right. Garrett Tyson has a great argument on this that Meeks uses over the controversy in Corinth about whether or not you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. So... The poor people in Corinth would only have been able to consume meat at religious festivals. So when you kill a cow, you can't kill less than a full cow. So you end up with a bunch of extra meat. And the, what, the thing to do is to share that with your society. Um, and so you sacrifice a cow, a pig, or whatever, and you share this with your, with your village. And this is when poor people would have had their most consistent or regular opportunity to eat meat, which means it would have had a strong association for for them with sacrifices. Rich people, on the other hand, or the more wealthy people, would have had other opportunities. They could have bought meat on the market, or um, they would have had other access to meat. And so it would have a weaker association with pagan festivals or sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And this maps really nicely onto the conflict we see in Corinth. The people who have access to regular meat would not have associated it as strongly with pagan rituals, and the people who don't have a lot of access would have. And you can see how this would lead to people being upset that others are eating food offered to idols, and the weird compromise that Paul tells the rich that, no, this isn't a bad thing, but don't do it because it's going to offend the people who can't do it and also who won't do it because of their moral convictions. Meek says that overall, the Pauline letters gives us a fair cross-section of society, which I think is overstating the case a bit. But what he does say is that generally, from what we can tell from the Pauline letters, we're missing, you know, the, the tippy top, the top 1% of Roman society, the people who we mentioned earlier would be kind of named under these different Roman orders of caste. And we also appear to have silence from the bottom section of society, the poorest of the poor, the day laborers, the beggars, uh, the people who are really doing, just working uh, for a daily wage, just trying to survive. And Ian will have something to say about this in in a second. But just to summarize, you know, his conclusion is that the typical person in the Pauline network is probably a free artisan or a trader, someone who is a skilled laborer who does work with their hands but makes something that takes some kind of skill. And because of this, because people in Paul's network, a lot of Christians in this situation are going to have a certain amount of status and consistency because they might have a lot of wealth, but they don't have other elements of status 
uh, it really starts to bother them that they have these differing statuses that don't match up potentially with society's expectations or their own expectations for themselves. So there's some reason to be suspicious about the silence in the Pauline letters concerning subsistence living Christians. Right. Um, the Note that the argument that there are no members of the top level of society and there are no members from the bottom level of society are both arguments from silence. But there is an important disanalogy between the two. When Paul is addressed greeting Christians in Rome who he's heard about or heard from or has some relations with, even despite having never been there, we would expect him to mention if he knew of a prominent official in the Roman imperial household or something like that, we would expect him to send greetings to that person. We wouldn't necessarily expect him to have any knowledge of the subsistence, destitute, lowest economic and otherwise level Christian who is in Rome. And the fact that he doesn't greet a senator is meaningful because we would expect him to if there were senators. He greets other important figure. But the fact that he doesn't greet Joe Homeless person is probably not significant because we wouldn't expect him to know of that person's existence, even if they were there. The big payoff for Meeks from this survey of Pauline issues and prosopography is that a striking plurality of the figures attested in the Pauline corpus are people with high social inconsistency and people who tend to be something like what we might call a middle class, that is, people who are not day laborers or subsistence level workers, but people who are struggling to climb the social ladder and have some resources, have some moderate occupational status. Right. So the the payoff for Meeks here is that there are correlations between this kind of economic fact of status inconsistency and certain beliefs and practices of the early Christians. He doesn't want to say that status inconsistency is causing those beliefs, but he just wants to say that there is a relationship. He gives a number of these, and some of them we like and some of them we don't. But when he's actually discussing them, I'm not convinced that he's as non-committal about the causal relationships as he wants to portray right, himself. Right. Let's talk about the one we like more than the others. He says there's a positive correlation between high status and consistency, having being high on one social metric and low on another, and the apocalyptic worldview. That is, the idea that there's something broken in society and God or we are going to bring about some change, probably some combination of God and we. And he says... When he's actually discussing these, he says that people who are status inconsistent are going to seek out groups that recognize something broken in society. And at the same time, people who are given this theology that there's something broken in society that God needs to fix are going to be inclined towards creating status inconsistency by giving themselves, you know, ritual power that is inconsistent perhaps with their low economic or occupational status. And so he actually does say there is sort of a feedback loop here that these two things cause each other in both directions. And he's, you know, he's really trying to avoid the suggestion of your social status dictates your theology and your, or your theology dictates your social status. And I think he effectively does avoid that, but he still wants to say that, you know, beliefs matter. 
Yes, he's very so he's very concerned with fending off the charge of determinism or reductionism. Ooh, Marxism. Ooh. <laughs> uh, which yeah, I mean, which is good, but I but he just doesn't really uh, give us good tools for thinking about how these things work. You know, correlation is too weak, and his arguments do seem to bear that out. That even you know, in his own mind, he's really not talking about just correlations that we can't draw any connections between. Dale Martin, who is a student of Wayne Meeks, uh, has a really good essay in the book After the First Urban Christians, where he actually, you know, shows through his own work how to actually show that maybe certain social conditions had effects on the beliefs and practices of early Christians without being deterministic or reductionistic. Meeks goes on to argue that an imminent God, the belief that God is concerned with your personal life, leads to a more intimate society or more intimate church that's more concerned with your personal life. This is a really, really short treatment. Uh, ben and I aren't particularly convinced by it, and yeah. we're more or less going to skip it. Right. Um, uh, I'm not totally sure what he's claiming, and depending on what he means by involved and what he's trying to compare this to, I'm not really sure he's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. More interesting is this claim that monotheism is correlated with both ecumenism, the idea that we are united as um, one church throughout the world, and exclusivism, that we have the way and y'all don't. And I think Ben and I both think this is soft wrong. Uh, I mean, it might be, you know, medium wrong. Um, I mean, so my, you know, we have different kind of parallels here, but, you know, my parallel would be with, would be Judaism at the time where, you know, obviously Jews are monotheists, but when it comes to ecumenism, there doesn't seem to be a strong sense of unity and shared identity between different diaspora groups. Uh, different synagogues in different places don't seem to show a ton of interest, as far as we know, in uh, relating to one another and considering each other part of one unified body, which is the implication that Meeks argues for, for... I'm not as convinced by this as Ben. I think there is evidence that all Jews everywhere believed in the centrality of the temple and saw themselves in continuity with that group. And this is, this is Sanders' argument, right? That even the Jews that think the current temple in Jerusalem is run by corrupt and bad people uh, still believe that this is central to proper religion, whatever that is. So slightly different nuances. I think a stronger counterexample to Meek's claim is Greco-Roman monotheism, which leads not to ecumenism and not to exclusivism, but rather to syncretism, that people in all of their diversity are worshiping the same thing without knowing it. And this is about as far from exclusivism as you can get. And so we have philosophical monotheism in the Greco-Roman world that isn't correlated with what Meeks says it ought to be. If I could push back on one point, I'm not going to argue against Sanders here, but I do think that the lines of relationship are different there, right? So that there are lines between synagogues and, and the diaspora and the temple, but potentially not the same kinds of relationships between different synagogues and Jewish communities in the diaspora. Um, right. And I think, you know, and again, Ian is completely right, especially when it comes to this kind of philosophical monotheism that we find in uh, Greek and Roman culture, that monotheism does not necessarily entail a social exclusivism. It, that's, I mean, that's kind of a 
that's a whole di- different discussion. Right. The evidence doesn't support that. Yeah, Ben's line point, Judaism is centered on the temple, whereas Christians form webs and networks among themselves. I think that's what um, he's getting at. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the sort of ecumenism, if we can even call it that, in Judaism is different from what we see in Christianity. I'm still not sure that provides a strong counterexample to Meek's claim for a correlation, which is why I think the Greco-Roman example is more important. I mean, I would say either way, strict monotheism doesn't produce necessarily what he's saying it produces. Yeah, that's right. So this book sort of brings social history into New Testament and early Christian scholarship. And for this reason, Ben and I agree that this is a really important study. Absolutely. That is not to say there aren't some methodological problems with how he frames the question or is or addresses social history. It seems like he's he's trying very hard to distance himself from Marxism. I think Ian can probably remind us this is this is definitely a you know, it's it's a feature of his time and when he's writing, right? So this book was written in the early eighties. Marxism is associated, especially in the religious studies, with a very reductionist view of religion and theology. Um, it's very much associated in Meek's time with views of religion as, you know, the opiate of the masses, as simply a way of appeasing um, the destitute and preventing them from rising out of their social situation. And I would certainly personally not argue for any kind of, you know, taking vulgar Marxism as a philosophical uh, worldview and running with that. With that said, I mean, Marxism and Marxist uh, analyses have provided a lot. So Meeks does a really good job, I think, of showing how you can locate the Pauline network specifically within a specific larger network or cluster of networks revolving around certain economic modes of production, traveling artisans, uh, people who work with their hands, people who are kind of climbing up the social ladder but aren't uh, part of the top 1%. What he doesn't explore enough, in my opinion, is how that actual economic world really might affect some of these beliefs and practices in stronger ways. Um, He's willing to give kind of theological explanations for why Pauline Christians behaved the way they did and why the Christian, the Pauline network expanded the way it did. But I do think we can really, really safely ground the Pauline Christianity within a very specific economic life world and that that life world can have real implications for how we understand more aspects of Pauline Christianity than he is willing to admit. Well, thanks, Ben, for doing this uh, one with us. Let me come back. Uh, Absolutely. We'll have to have you back sometime soon. So Ian's wife says we have to be nicer when we ask for reviews. I'm not allowed to yell at you anymore. Well, we love hearing your reviews and uh, when you guys leave reviews and say what you think about the show. We really love this, but we actually have another request for you guys. Yeah, five-star reviews, they don't hurt, but a lot of you have already done that. Thank you. How about instead, you share our podcast on the social medias? Every time you guys share a show or an episode of it on Twitter or Facebook, uh, more people get to find the show and find out about us, and uh, more people listen, which is really exciting for us. So pick your favorite episode. It may not have been this one. We get that. Pick your favorite episode and post about it on Facebook, about why we're wrong, or why we're right, or why people should engage with us. Or why our voices sound weird. Yeah, that too. (laughs) 
Hey, Jody, was that nicer? <laughs>